0: Well, good morning. Good uh, Independence Day weekend. Yes, uh, Pastor Aaron is gone, so I have the real privilege of uh, standing in. Now, with with Aaron, of course, he's got beautiful PowerPoints and, uh, <laughs> and he's much better on illustrations than I am, right? Uh, but I'm just a lowly teacher and I'm given the task this morning. We're beginning a new series, so we've finished up. If you've been with us, we've uh, been looking at First and Second Samuel for really two years, right? And uh, this summer, we're starting a new series, just a short series, uh, on the Book of Psalms. So that's why we're looking at Psalms one and two, and then after the summer, if I have this right, if I remember things correctly, we'll be looking at. Uh, Pastor Aaron will be looking at the book of Ephesians. So I think that is the order, but we are introducing the psalms, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles. Now, if you have a pew Bible there, underneath the chairs and so on, uh, the paperback Bibles, uh, I think it's on page 448, is the beginning of the book of Psalms, and you'll need that Bible we're going to be looking at Psalm 1 and 2, we're going to do that just very much briefly, but first we'll we we'll spend some time just talking about, since it's the beginning of the series, the book of Psalms. Right? So let's read first uh, Psalm 1 and 2, we're going to read these together, and you'll see in a moment that they need to be kept together, right? uh, but we'll read Psalm 1 and 2, follow along uh, in your copy of God's Word, and let's hear the Word of the Lord together. The book of Psalms begins, Blessed is the man, and it applies to women too, but blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous for the lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the lord and his anointed one anointed one is another word for messiah "'Let us break their chains,' they say, "'and throw off their fetters.' "'The one enthroned in heaven laughs. "'The Lord scoffs at them. "'Then he rebukes them in his anger "'and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, "'I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. "'I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. "'He said to me, "'You are my son. "'Today I have become your father.' Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, let's ask the Lord to teach us from his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful book of Psalms, what we call the Psalter. It has been a precious book to your people both in the Old Testament era, the Jewish people, and now for the church. Uh, Help us as we begin this study to think about this book that you've given to us. Help us to understand its message. Help us to apply its lessons to our lives so that we may be those who are blessed. We are those who... Fear you and fear your king, fear our Lord Jesus, and also see in these psalms the perfect portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Help us to that end, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, keep your book of psalms before you. We're going to be flipping through this because this is sort of introductory, and then we'll come back to... Uh, Psalm 1 and 2, but we'll be looking at certain elements, so that'll be helpful. I should put it all up on PowerPoint, but I don't. Uh, I'm not really one of those Apple guys. You could do that with Microsoft, but I'm just one of those lowly Microsoft guys. But as I said, we're beginning a new book, our new series on the book of Psalms. This is a precious book. Uh, People know of the Psalter, I mean the Gideons. My father was a Gideon who um, gave uh, Bibles to fifth graders in schools. And uh, the New Testament was always packaged with the Book of Psalms <laughs> and Proverbs, right? So, the Book of Psalms, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament era, right, has been precious to God's uh, people. It's been the hymn book. Some some congregations of churches uh, actually use the Psalter, this whole book, as their as their song book. They don't. Some churches won't sing any other song but the Psalms, right? So this has been the hymn book of the Jewish people and even for the church today. Uh, in the New Testament, right? when you think of the New Testament quoting the Old, I used to always quiz the kids with this. We'd read the New Testament and I'd say, where does that come from? <laughs> when they're quoting the Old, they always hate that when a you know, teacher you know, father asks them those questions. But uh, you could always guess. <laughs> you either say, Isaiah, <laughs> and you'd be mostly right, Or you say the book of Psalms, right? Because 41% of all the New Testament quotations of the Old are from the book of Psalms. And probably, I didn't add up Isaiah, but it's probably equal. So you probably have about 80% is from those two books, right? They're very, very important books. So the Psalter is very, very important. And I would say it's one of the favorite books of our Lord Jesus. He's quoting it all the time. Think of on the cross when he quotes... Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? So this is a very, very important book. Now, the book of Psalms is poetry, isn't it? It's poetry that focuses on a number of themes. It focuses on the glory of God, right? The incomparable majesty of God celebrates him in all of his attributes, all of his works. So many of the Psalms will have creation Psalms and God's rule over the world and God's salvation of his people and ultimately the judgment of his enemies. The book of Psalms is thoroughly God-centered. Right? That's just part of the book. Right? It's also a book that over and over again reminds us of God's promises. Right? Over and over again, the people of God appeal to the promises of God. So the book of Psalms assumes you know all of those promises from the Old Testament, and it appeals to God's promises in the midst of uh, the people of God suffering. Right? Particularly, David shows up, and he's a suffering figure. He's always uh, running from his enemies, particularly Saul and Absalom. So, Absalom, Psalm three, and then eventually later psalms that are Saul. We we saw this in first, second, in first and second Samuel. Right, so David's life is recounted through. The Psalms of David, and it also gives us hope. It also looks to God's promises, God to save, and it entrusts ourselves to Him. Right? It's a book that we're familiar with. So think of Psalm 19. Right? Uh, we could even look at some of these. Right? These are famous songs. Right? So Psalm 19 is a creation psalm that says, "The heavens declare the glory of God." We're familiar with that. It says, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, right? It's a celebration of God. Or you have in Psalm 23, very famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? I will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. I mean, such a precious psalm that have been to God's people. Or Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, his favorite psalm was Psalm 46. And it's a very, very familiar psalm as well. God is our refuge, And strength, ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way. And the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Whether the waters roar or foam, the mountains quake. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I mean, all of that psalm just is so powerful, so rich. It encourages God's people and so on. Or you read in Psalm 73, there's that famous statement of Asaph. Where after looking at the wicked, he says, and this becomes a cry of God's people, Whom have I in heaven, in earth? Whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I mean, those are probably well familiar psalms to you, right there. Glorying in God, they're taking His promises, they're rejoicing in Him in hope in the midst of difficulties. The book of Psalms ends with that uh, hallelujah of praise. In fact, the last four Psalms are called Hallelujah Psalms, right? And it's as if, as you come to the end of the book, it's as if all of creation is one praise to God, right? So we read. In Psalm 150, praise the Lord. That's what really hallelujah means, isn't it? Praise him in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. And it goes on, and then it says in verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I mean, that's how the book ends, right? It's also a wonder this book has been such a precious book to God's people. One of my colleagues at the seminary, Jim Hamilton, he's written two volumes on the book of Psalms. I'd highly recommend that you buy those two volumes. It's really, really good, good work, right? But he says here, the Psalms, he sort of summarizes them, he says, are true history, they're fulfilled prophecy, they're enduring praise. The book of Psalms is a school of prayer, a fountain of truth, a revelation of God himself. We will not master this book. But, oh, that this book would master us, becoming the pulse to which our hearts beat, the soil in which our souls take root. Right? Now, I think that's a good assessment of the book, and this is one of the reasons it's been precious through the ages. However, now you may have been anticipating, my wife always anticipates a but here, right? However, right? What I want to suggest to you, and this is what we want to look at here, is as precious as this book is, right, as comforting as is, and often as we've read it as you know, sort of individual psalms that speak to our lives and so on, however, we often forget when we read the book of Psalms that it is an entire book. And what we often do is we treat it I think like a bag of marbles. So you have your bag of marbles, you open them up, and what do those marbles do? They each individually go their own direction. right? But there's nothing sort of uniting them. It's sort of as if you just sort of dip in and you read, oh, let's read Psalm 73, let's read Psalm 23, let's read Psalm uh, 46, and so on. But the book of Psalms really, we'll see in a few moments here, doesn't come to us like that. Obviously, you have 150 psalms, but it is given to you as a book, right? So a better analogy, even than bag of marbles, is we often treat, because it's poetry, we often treat the book of psalms like a storage cabinet or a filing system where we've got sacred music sort of piled up, and we just sort of pull individual pieces out and sing that song. But instead, we need to treat the book of psalms as an oratorio, as a great piece of music that all the parts, even though each contributes to the whole, is part of a whole, right? And we need to think carefully how this book actually has come to us. Now, obviously, we can read the book of Psalms with profit, and the church has done so by just picking individual psalms. But, right, that is not how it's intended to be read. Now, why do I say that? Because when you read scripture, right, you're always looking for the author's intent. And this book does not come to us as just individual psalms. It comes to us as an entire collection. Right? So if we're to read it the way it's intended to be read, we must read it in terms of an entire book. So that's what we want to look at in just notions of introduction here before we then turn to Psalm one and two. So we want to do three things, right? One, we want to demonstrate, right? So I'm going to put my sort of professor hat on, teaching hat on here. I'm going to demonstrate that uh, this really should be read as a book, right? That may be something different that we're not used to. But I'm going to give you five reasons, and we could give many more. But my wife said keep it short. So five reasons why we need to read this as an entire book. Then I want to say, just briefly, show you that there's really a theme to the larger book, right? There's an overview, sort of a basic overview. There's really, even though it's poetry, right, it really is an oratorial, right? So it's individual pieces that fit in terms of an overall message, right? And it's very, very important to see that message. And then we'll turn to Psalm 1 and 2, because Psalm 1 and 2, we'll say just in a moment, really is the introduction to the entire book, right? So that's uh, the overture to the oratorio, right? So that will then unfold before you, and then it will culminate in songs of praise, right? That are to lead us to the future, right? So that's what we want to look at. So first, right? So three areas here we want to read, learn how to read the book as the Psalter as a book, and I want to give you some evidence for why we should not just think of this book as individual 150 psalms that are like that bag of marbles or that filing cabinet with just individual pieces of music, right? So five reasons. The first reason is, right, is that the only way that we have the book is as a whole, right? We don't have individual psalms floating around. (laughs) It comes to us as a collection. Nobody in the history of the church, right, even in the Old Testament era when this book was put together ever read it as individual psalms. They always read it as a whole. And the proof of that, number of proof of that, is how it's arranged. Right? So look at Psalm 1, and you can probably see this in your Bibles. Most of our Bibles preserve for us a deliberate arrangement of the book. Right? Most of your Bibles will have, before Psalm 1, they will have this statement, Book 1. <laughs> right? And if you work through the whole Psalter, there's actually five parts, right? There's five books. So in my Bible here, and I looked at the Pew Bible, so it doesn't have this, but uh, actually my Bible has book one, and then it has parentheses, what those Psalms are in book one. right? And so if you look through the entire book, book one is from Psalms 1 to 41. Book two is from Psalm 42 72. So there's a deliberate part to it. Sort of like that oratorial. There's the, the various uh, parts of the, of the music piece, right? And then book three is from Psalm 73 to 89. And then book four is from 90 to 106. And book five is from 107 to 150. It's deliberate. So what's it telling you? Well, Right? The one who has put this book together is putting it together purposely. Right? Now, uh, when is it put together? It's very interesting. You ask that question, right? We have Psalm. Psalm 90 is probably the earliest Psalm that we have in the book. It goes back to Moses, so that's a long time ago. Right? Psalm 137. If you look at Psalm 137 very briefly, right, just the opening verses you'll know that this psalm had to be written in a certain time period. We read in Psalm 137, right, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. Well, In Old Testament history, right, this is when the nation of Israel went off into exile to Babylon. So if Psalm 137 includes the exile, right, then the collection has to be after the exile, right? So as the nation of Israel comes back out of Babylon, right? they go back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the, the, the temple and so on, and that's when this book would have been put together in a very deliberate fashion. We don't know who put it together. My guess probably is Ezra did it. right? Ezra, this famous uh, priest and uh, the teacher of Israel. But we don't know, but there's a deliberate organization to it. So that's one reason to think that you should be looking at this book. We don't have it any other way. It has deliberate arrangement, right? And we know it's come to us after all of... It's really at the end of the Old Testament that it really comes to us as an entire book, right? Now, second reason is, within the book, right, you've got these five books, and then at the end of each book, one, two, three, four, is a doxology, right? A word of praise, And it all is the same. I mean, there's a few variations of it. But basically, the praise. So if you look at uh, Psalm 41, right? So this is the end of Book 1. Notice how the psalm ends in verse 13. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It's a kind of conclusion, right? Well, that same doxology is found at the end of book one, book two, book three, book four. It's not at the end of book five, because book five ultimately leads you to the song of praises, right? But that's a kind of, you see, obviously, if you look at this, you say, well, this has been deliberately ordered, right? You also see that a third reason is is that at the beginning of each book, there's author changes, (laughs) right? So at the beginning of book one, it's all David, Right? And book 1, 90% of those psalms in book 1 are all Davidic psalms. Right? Book 2, who begins book 2? The sons of Korah, whoever they are. Right? The sons of Korah, and then you have a lot of Davidic psalms again. And then in book 3, Asaph starts it. Book 4, Moses starts it. And book 5, no author is cited, but that's a change. Right? So the collection is being organized, books... Doxologies are finishing those books and author changes, right? So under the inspiration of the Spirit, this is being put together carefully, right? Now, turn to Psalm 72. There's a very, very curious (laughs) statement at the end of Psalm 72, right? So this is at the end of book two, and then we read in verse 20 of Psalm 72, this concludes... The prayers of David, son of Jesse. Now it would you would seem right that uh, with that statement, that thereafter you don't have any more Psalms of David, but that's not true. So what on earth is this statement saying here? Now, I've been in the academic world long enough to hear nonsense. Right, the more you have a PhD, <laughs> the more you have a Ph.D the more you become a post hole digger, right? That's what PhD stands for. <laughs> Nothing against holes, right? But, uh, or, well, there's other expressions for it as well, but we'll just keep posthole digger, that's probably the kindest. Very, very few PhDs do you trust, honestly, right? You read in these academics, right? They will come across a statement like this in Psalm 72, verse 20, and they'll say, well, here's evidence that the person who put this book together wasn't very bright, Because obviously, they say the Psalms of David ended, but then we have more Psalms. This is one of those little mistakes that you have in the Bible. Don't believe it. The one who put this together is deliberately making a point. What we see in these first two books, it's not accidental, that primarily the first two books are all David Psalms, aren't they? 77% 77% of the entire Psalms in the first two books are all David. And they really recount for you exactly everything we've looked at over the last two years. <laughs> the last two years in First and 2 Samuel, we've looked at the rise of David. <laughs> we've looked at his uh, opposition with Saul, uh, his taking of his throne his internal um, problems in his own house, starting with his own adultery and murder of Uriah and then Absalom. I mean, what a mess. We've looked at David, warts and all, right? He is a man after God's own heart, but he's a very flawed individual. Yet he loves God and he loves him and he repents. And so on. all those things that we have looked at, right? Book 1 and 2 is primarily concerned with David. And this is why we'll see just in a moment here that really, Book 1 and 2 is really about, in some sense, the rise of David. Right? It's not accidental that Psalm 72 is a Solomon Psalm. Did you notice at the top of Psalm 72, it says, of Solomon? Right? So the Books 1 and 2 really take you through the rise of David uh, to Solomon, and then Book 3 opens with a marked change. Right? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, this is Psalm 73. But Asaph says, "As for me, my feet almost slipped; I nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." David now is speaking of huge struggles as he looks at the wicked, as he looks at those who seem to have health and strength and money and so on. We often interpret this as just sort of looking at your neighbor. That's not a good interpretation of it, right? What's going on in book 3 is David has risen, Solomon has taken over, but book 3 is all about the collapse of David's house, right? And that's exactly, we haven't got there yet, because that you'd have to read First and 2 Kings, right? When we end it at uh, 2 Samuel, David is on the throne, he'll pass off the baton in 1 Kings to Solomon, but it's not long after Solomon... The Davidic house is ultimately brought to its destruction, right? Solomon is the last unified king of Israel, and then it divides the nation. And in the north, we'll blame it on the north, right? In the north, right, uh, not, there's not one good king. Not one. And in the south, maybe on one hand, you can say they're sort of good. The house of David is disastrous. And that's what book three ultimately will deal with, right? So book three is deliberately, right? So this is why Psalm 72 says, this concludes the prayers of David. It's as if this is the historical David. This is his rise. And then book three is the collapse. And of course, you see that at the end of book three, just turn to Psalm 89. This is a psalm that is parallel to Psalm 72 at the end of book two, but this now ends book three and it's praising David, right? Uh, Look at Psalm 89, we'll begin in verse 1. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I'll make known your faithfulness, right? And then look at verse 3. You said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever. Here's a strong Davidic emphasis. Psalm 72 ends with this Solomon psalm that praises the king. But then in book 3, it's as if the nation has collapsed. But Psalm 89 reminds you of the promises of David. It will even go on in uh, verse 23 about um, crushing the foes before him. Uh, and in verse 25, I'll set his hand over the sea. I mean, this is, this is a kind of promise of the Davidic king. But then notice in verse 38, right, as the entire book 3 lays out for you, the Davidic house, though, has collapsed. There's promises to the Davidic house, but the Davidic house is collapsed. Look at verse 30, 38. But, right, so in light of all of these praises of the Davidic house, but Lord, you rejected us. You have spurned us. You have been very angry with your anointed one. That's the king, right? You have renounced the covenant with your servant. Verse 40: you have broken all of his walls and reduced the strongholds. This is what it's what it's saying here. The whole book three is telling you. The Davidic house is in ruins, right? So Psalm seventy-two is the last, in some sense, of these historic psalms of David, and then Book Three says the house is gone. That's why Asaph will cry, "Oh Lord, how long? Where are your promises? What's happening?" Right? Look at at the end of verse forty-six of Psalm eighty-nine: "How long, O Lord?" That "how long, O Lord" is not just helping me in my individual life, that's true. But in this context here, it's how long will you allow the nations to rule over us and not give us the king? Not keep your promises. Because remember, as we've looked at First uh, and Second Samuel, God made promises to David that he would have a kingdom that would rule forever. But there's no kings. And so in verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting my life is, right? And then verse 49, O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David, right? What's the cry here? The house of David is destroyed, but where, O God, is David? (laughs) Where are your promises, right? And then verse 50, remember, Lord, your servant has been mocked. Your, I bear in my heart the taunts of the nations, right? This is seemingly as if the Davidic house is destroyed. And it's no accident then that book five, four, now and book five, begins to give the people hope. Right? Book four begins with a Moses song. Why would you begin in book four with a Moses song, right? Well, the reason you do so, right, is in the history of Israel. Israel has looked in very bad shape before. They were slaves in Egypt. 400 years. And who takes them out according to the promises of God to Abraham and to Israel and so on? It's Moses. Moses is the one who leads the nation out. Moses is the one who intercedes for the people, and it's as if, right, this book four is beginning with, God is going to keep his promises, he's going to do what he did before, but now greater, right? We speak of the Old Testament, the exodus. God takes through Moses, right, the nation of Israel in an exodus, but the anticipation here is ultimately, as Moses prays, he's praying that God will do another exodus. God will bring a greater salvation, and that's why book 4 and 5 give us hope. Psalms of David will return, but this isn't just a contradiction to Psalm 72 where it says all those psalms have ended. It's Psalms of David that anticipate ultimately a greater David to come. That's how this book is leading us and put together, right? You can even see, and here's a fifth reason, is, is that as you go through the book, there's a progression from lament psalms to hope. Right? Most of the lament psalms are found in book one through three. Right? But in book four and five, you're giving way to hope. A message comes through, the Lord will save, the Lord will keep his promises, and so on. So all that's to say, right? this book is making a point as a book. <laughs> so you can read it as individual psalms, but you're going to really miss the full point of it. Right? You're going to miss God's intent. In this book, there's a deliberate arrangement. There's an overall message, even though it's poetry. It's not like a storyline like you have in a narrative. It's like an oratorio. right? oratorios can tell stories, right? So my wife and I were talking this morning about Handel's Messiah. I don't know, hopefully you've heard Handel's Messiah, this great oratorio that lays out the coming of Christ. Well, Handel's Messiah in music form lays out the Old Testament prophecies, the Christmas coming of the Son of God, all the way to a second coming. It's a whole story, but it's done to music and song and so on. That's really what this book of Psalms is all about. Right. So let's turn to the secondary here where, in some sense, We've already been picking up some of these areas, but here, what is the basic overview then of this Psalter, right? What is the basic storyline, right? Well, if we were to give the biggest sense of it, the overture to the oratorio, right, is Psalm 1 and 2, right? And it's very important to see that there's no titles or what we call superscriptions given to those Psalms. They're, they're, They're meant to be read together, to bounce off one another in some sense. That's entering into the book. And then you have book one, two, three, four, right? And five. At the end of book five, really sort of now the finale, right? So when all the fireworks come out and all the cymbals and the drums and whatever, all in terms of the oratorio comes out. You can tell I'm not an expert on this. Uh, So Psalm 146 through 150. It's when all those hallelujah psalms come out. So you move from Psalm 1 and 2 that introduces, right, enters the oratorio, and then Psalm 146 and 50, it's all the cymbals and the drums and the songs. And hallelujah, may all of creation praise the Lord. Right. That's how, and in the middle, you then have book 1 and 2, the life of David to his rise. Book 3, the collapse of the Davidic house. Book 4, Renew your hope in the Lord. The Lord will save by providing the king. And then ultimately, book 5 unpacks all of that. So when you look at Psalm 1 and 2, and we'll come back just in a moment to this, where this is the sort of overture, the introduction to the book. Who do we read about? We read about the blessed man. But the blessed man is sandwiched with the king. So ultimately, now there will be application to us. But ultimately, the blessed man is the king. The blessed man is the one that Israel has hoped for. Right? Remember, this book, right, as a collection, comes after the exile. After the exile, there's no Davidic kings anymore. <laughs> if there are Davidic kings, they're just simply puppet rulers under, Persia, then ultimately under Greece and under Rome, that ultimately gets you to the time of Christ, right? So when they announce the blessed man and the king, you have to read this in this particular context as the hope for a king, right? The kings are all gone, right? If you're the nation of Israel, you could say, Good luck. I mean, you're talking about the king. There is no king. You could be a cynic. It's not how you're supposed to be. Instead, you're supposed to be saying, there may be no king, but there's coming a king. Right? And that is how these opening psalms. So the blessed man is the one who delights in the word of the Lord. That goes back to a number of themes, obviously, in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Joshua, the opening verses of Joshua, are very similar to Psalm 1. The blessed man, Joshua, as he takes over the mantle from Moses, he is, what is he supposed to do? The book of the Torah shall never depart from his mouth. He shall meditate on it day and night. His way will be prosperous. Sounds just like Psalm 1, doesn't it? Right? So ultimately the rulers of Israel, the blessed one is to be this one who comes. Or you have Deuteronomy. The, the Deuteronomy 17, you have the anticipation of the king. What is the king supposed to do in Deuteronomy 17? Every time the king comes onto the throne, he's supposed to copy the Torah and he's supposed to meditate on it. He's supposed to obey it. He's supposed to follow it, right? So Psalm 1 has sort of these echoes from... Return, right? And this is why this will not be first, you and I, the blessed man. Uh, It is ultimately to be the blessed man who is the king. Now, again, we'll have application to us. But the basic message then of the Psalter is the coming of a future Davidic king. The one who will bring God's promises to pass. The one who will usher in God's saving rule. The one who will put all things under his feet. Psalm 8 and Psalm 110, these are the great passages that Jesus refers to in the New Testament right? that apply to himself. And as I said, book 1 and 2 gives you the historic David. David, who's given promises, becomes a type and pattern of Christ. He is the one who takes his reign, but the hope for the kingdom of God to come is not found in David. And we learned again that in 1 and 2 Samuel David is wonderful. He points forward to the king, but he's not the king. He has to look forward to a greater David, a greater son. And even that's not Solomon, as great as he was. It has to look beyond. Book 3, as I said, recounts the failure of the kings. Psalm 89 says, Lord, you've abandoned us. How long, O Lord? And then book 4, as I've said, begins with Moses. The hope of the nation is that the Lord is the one So you turn over to, say, Psalm 91. It's interesting to see. You see this over and over again in Book 4. The hope is found in God. right? The hope is found in the Lord who will act to save. So after that Psalm 90, where you have the Moses Psalm that recounts for the nation of Israel, God saved us before, he could do it again. Look at some of these psalms as they are laid out for us. Psalm 91 He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty, right? Or you read in Psalm 93, this is all Book 4, the Lord reigns, He's robed in majesty, the Lord is robed in majesty, He's armed with strength, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Psalm 94, O Lord, uh, the God who avenges, the God who avenges, shine forth. Psalm 96 uh, you read, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Declare the glory among the nations. And you work through this book. The message that comes through is, the Davidic house has been destroyed, but, oh, Lord, you can save. Right? And that's why, over and over again, the Lord saves. You call to the Lord. You look to him, the Lord who reigns. But then he picks up in book four, and particularly book five, David now returns. Davidic psalms return. They disappear in book three. Only one of them. And in book four, and particularly book five, you have Davidic Psalms. The famous psalm in book five is Psalm 110. This is such an important psalm in the New Testament. This is what Jesus will say to the religious leaders. He's talking to them on the week that of his crucifixion, and he says to them, hey, who's, who's the Messiah from the Old Testament? Who, who, who is he? Well, they say he's David's son. And then he says, but why? Why? why does david say my the lord yahweh says to my lord sit at my right hand obviously this davidic king isn't just merely the son of david he's also david's very lord a lord who sits at god's right hand and of course the religious leaders have nothing more to say and jesus is saying i'm more than just a human." I am the Davidic son, but I'm something more. And of course, that's how the book of Psalms goes, doesn't it? As the book of Psalms anticipates the Lord who saves, he will save through a king. Even if you look at, and we'll just finish here and then turn to Psalm 1 1 and 2, but Psalm 106. It's very important to see the connecting links between Psalm 106 and 107, the end of book 4. So book 4 is holding out hope that the Lord will save but we're reminded in Psalm 106, we read in verse 40 and following, the nation is in exile. It's referring to their, the nations ruling over them. You see that in verse uh, 47. Save us, O God, our, our Lord our God. Gather us from the nations. It's, it's, the nation is in exile. And they're praying to God ultimately to save us, to gather us from the nations. And then notice how book 5 opens. Book 5 says, give thanks to the Lord for he's good. Verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. <laughs> it's as if they have now been saved. And you see that particularly in verse 13. They cried to the Lord for their, for their, in their trouble, and he saved them. Right? Book 5 has you, in terms of Israel's history, out of exile. But then the hope of book 5 is there's a coming king, right? That's something how the book goes, and then it finishes, ultimately, in the hallelujah, right? This message of this book, this is what I encourage you to do. Not only just read as individual psalms, but read it as it's intended to be as a book. It's giving you, in some sense, the whole message of the Old Testament, right? The message of the Old Testament, right, is that there's coming a one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He will come as the great Davidic king. Uh, The Davidic house has been cut off. That God will keep his promise. It's no wonder why the Lord Jesus treats this as his, in some sense, his favorite book. It's no wonder this is quoted so much in the New Testament, isn't it? Because this book, first and foremost, yes, is about his, his history of Israel and their sufferings and so on, but it's ultimately about him. Right? It's about the coming of the king. Now, let's go back to Psalm 1 and 2, and we will keep this brief, right? There's the sort of overview, but now the introduction, the overture to the entire book, Psalm 1 and 2. So I've been saying here, right, that ultimately, first and foremost, (laughs) the blessed man of Psalm 1 is the king. That's how I think you should see these together. Yeah, now, you say, well, if it's the blessed king, if it's the king, it's Lord Jesus ultimately anticipating, then does it apply to us? Well, it does. Often, obviously, as Christ comes as king, what he does in his humanity and his obedience and his delight of the law of the Lord is is the same thing that we're supposed to have. In fact, even in Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6, you can see the relationship of the blessed man and the people of God, don't you? He says in verse 5, "...therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly." Right? of the righteous, the people of God. Right, So the blessed man is the one who is part of a people, too. Right? He's part of the assembly of the righteous. Verse 6, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and that's in plural, right? The people of God are the righteous, not just the individual righteous, but the people of God. So what is true of Christ is also, right in some sense, supposed to be true of us. If he is the true blessed man, then we are to be blessed as well by being like him. Particularly, obviously, in his humanity. And that's why I, Psalm 1 does apply to us. So Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. Right? Psalm 1 is, in wisdom psalms, contrasting the blessed with the wicked. And the Bible gives you only two options. Right? In our day and age, we've got all kinds of pluralism and ideas. Oh, everyone's got their own beauty. No, no, no. The Bible says you're either for God or against Him. Right? As creatures, we're all creatures, you either bend your knee... To the God of the Bible, or you stand opposed to Him. That's how this works. Two options, two ways of living, two ways before you, right? And we're described this blessed man is the one, and you see this kind of progression, right, which applies so much in our lives, right? The blessed man is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and then he does not sit or stand in the way of sinners or sit, right? So you walk. You stand there, and then you sit. Well, that's a progression that is true of all of our lives if we're not careful, right? Uh, We can listen to that which stands opposed to God and His ways, and we sort of listen to it. We sort of, hmm, let me listen to those ideas. Uh, Let me now sort of stand uh, with you and have discussion, and then let me sit, and now I become a mocker with you, right? There's a sense in which, right, that's a warning to us of being very, very careful that we don't become the mockers of the world, we don't stand with the wicked, that we don't start in a slow progression down the path that they go, right? I've witnessed this over my life for many, many, many years, right? As people drift, they drift first by entertaining ideas, and then, oh, let's embrace those ideas and discuss those ideas. And then they pick up those ideas and they sit with the mockers, right? We must be careful we don't do that. Of course, the Lord Jesus never did this, right? And that'll be the point as well. But we are to be those who make sure that we don't listen, we don't walk, and we don't sit, right? But what's the opposite, right? We have in um, the next point is how, what, it was, what is the blessed one? He is the one in verse 2 who delights. In the law of the Lord, on His law he meditates. Right here is a clear picture of what you and I are supposed to be. Right, delighting in the law of the Lord. Right, taking God's word, delighting in it. it isn't just sort of saying, "Yeah, I believe the Bible. <laughs> I read it periodically. It's, it's on my shelf, gains dust." No, delighting in the law of the Lord is all that God says I receive. Even those difficult things, even when I don't want to hear his rebuke of me. I receive his word, I take it, I study it, meditating on it. Isn't just sort of uh, periodically picking it up for Sunday. right? I mean, it's study of it, it's meditation upon it. It's, it's not then taking the ideas of the world, it's setting the scripture over against those ideas. That's the blessed man and that person is like a tree planted, a uh, yielding fruit. I mean, all of this is imagery from the Old Testament Israel. Did not bear much fruit, but the blessed man will bear fruit. Right? Uh, this picture is even Eden, right? Adam in the garden with four rivers and so on. The blessed trees, trees show up a lot in Scripture. The stability, strong, aren't toppled down. That's how we are blessed. The opposite is the wicked, verse 4. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. Right? I lived. Uh, we lived for a while, four years in South Dakota, and see the farmers... Uh, harvest their corn crops or wheat crops and all that, and in those big combines, right, what kicks out, you know, gets all dusty uh, in the wind is just chaff, right? It takes the kernels and then just blows the rest, right? What an imagery of the wicked. They're just blowing in the wind, right? Uh, there's an old song that would said that. But uh, here they are. They're the chaff, they're the wicked. They are the mockers. The wind blows away. They won't stand in the judgment course, this is reminding us we are not to be like that, right? We and what's the alternative, right? The, the 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 solution. The solution is ultimately to those who love God's word and fear Him. But notice here, it's very important to connect Psalm two, right? The wicked aren't just and the mockers aren't just sort of mocking in our wicked against nothing. <laughs> Psalm two sets you up with the king. Ultimately, the mockers of chapter 1 also are the mockers of chapter 2 right the council of the wicked in chapter 1 verse 1 are the same people's in chapter 2 that conspire against the lord right we must not think that uh, mocking is just you know uh, without any kind of form or any kind of content to it no the mocking ultimately stands against god and stands against his anointed one. And now it's spoken of in terms of not just individuals, but entire nations, right? We live in a fallen world that, yes, individually we're fallen, but also we're part of entire world, <laughs> a world system, a world thought that stands opposed to God. So these mockers of chapter 1 become the nations that conspire. They plot in vain, even at the end of The book where it says, kiss the son in verse 12 of Psalm 2, lest you be destroyed in your way. There's two ways. There's the way of the righteous, that in this case here are the ones who honor the Lord and his son. And there's the way of the wicked who come to destruction. So this psalm here is reminding us that we are to be blessed by delighting in God's word, meditating upon it, hiding it in our hearts, fearing God, and that takes specific content and specific examples in terms of fearing the Lord. Right? This is why, right? Proverbs will say, "Who is the wise one? The one who fears God. Right? Who's the fool? Right? The fool can be a very, very smart person, but they're the one who doesn't fear God and they're led." ultimately destruction so in psalm 2 the application to us is right psalm 1 and 2 put together who are we (laughs) where do we stand right are we the blessed ones who fear god and fear the king right fear the lord jesus right that's what this points to are we the ones who receive god's word and say i stand with him we live in the Fourth of July, where you know much of our history of the nation has so many Christian roots to it, doesn't it? But now we're seeing more and more. you're gonna to have to take a stand, don't you? The church is going to have to stand against what is the culture. The culture no longer is amenable to Christianity, right? It's probably a good thing, right? We will show who are true Christians, right? Yet will you stand as a blessed one, right? Rooted and grounded, who will last, ultimately forever in the sense of God's people? Or will you stand opposed to God and his ways? Even over the last number of weeks with all the stuff in the news and overturning of Roe v. Wade and so on, it's interesting to see how the discussion goes. The anger ultimately quickly turns to get your Bible out of my face. Right? Get your God away from me, right? It's not just don't tell me what to do, (laughs) but get God out of my life, right? And that's what's being given here. So who are we? Where do we stand? Are we those who respond to God and his word and the king? Right? And then, of course, it's application to Christ. We just roughly finish up here very quickly, right? Is the application to Christ. I think the blessed man, first and foremost, ultimately is giving us as this overture to the entire Psalter. It's ultimately calling us to be blessed, but it's ultimately saying there's really only one blessed man. You see that in contrast to David, don't you, right? David is a man after God's own heart. He, Unlike Saul, he repents and he returns to the Lord and so on, but he doesn't perfectly obey God. Right? We celebrated the Lord's Supper, right? And Alex said about how our Lord Jesus is the one who assumed, the Son of God assumed our humanity. He obeyed for us. He is the greatest example of the blessed man, right? He's the one who delighted in the Word of God, He is the one who didn't stand and sit with the mockers. He's the one who obeyed God, his Father, fully and completely, and he did that for us. And, of course, he's the one that Psalm 2 is about. He's the one who has come, finally. In the Old Testament here, they look forward, but then we can fast forward. Many years went by. Jesus did come. He did get seated at God's right hand, right, in his resurrection, uh, he now rules and reigns as King of Kings. The Old Testament looked forward to this. You and I look back, and it's reminding us, right, that our allegiance must be found to Him and Him alone. Right, uh, that He is the one who can only save us, obey for us, delight in the law of the Lord, and ultimately pay for our sin. Right, and He is the King of Kings who will come again. Right, and so that's why this is about Him. So. Again, our lesson for us is, are we trusting in Him? Right? Not only are we the blessed one who love God and, and fear the king type of thing, fear the Lord Jesus, but is, is our faith and life centered in Him? Do we fear Him? Right? Uh, do we live for Him? Even this week, do we then say, He's the one is my Savior. He's the one I need. He's the one that I honor. Right? He's the one that no matter what the world says, I follow Him. Right? He's the king. And so we take up the admonishment of verse 10, therefore you kings, therefore you individuals, right? Be wise. Uh, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Fear him, be that blessed one, and rejoice with trembling and kiss the king, <laughs> kiss the son, lest he be angry. You'll be destroyed, right? The way that you walk, if you don't walk after him, your way is leading to destruction. But there, you don't have to go to destruction. You can have the way of life, and the way of life is to know the Son, to find your salvation in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Well, that's how this overture introduction begins to speak of the blessed man who is the King. It applies to us. But first and foremost, it draws our attention to the Lord Jesus, where our faith and confidence must be found. Well, May the Lord bless that to you today, and may you be found on his side, <laughs> and not with the mockers. Right? The mockers come to destruction, but the way of the righteous is forever. Now Let's pray.